podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of the iNewspaper and iNews.co.uk. I've got George Belshaw, our resident tennis writer, as always. You just can't get rid of him, quite frankly. And we've got a new voice and face on the podcast, uh, another one. Uh, We're we're hoping to have Calvin a little bit later on. But in the meantime, a much more than capable replacement in Tumani Cariol, the tennis journalist for The Guardian. Tumani, welcome to Tennis Unfiltered. Thanks for coming on. Hello, thanks for having me, guys. No, our pleasure. Uh, George, you're losing your head. Yeah, I'm not very happy with the football, but I'm, I'm going to decide not to bore people and not to work myself into a, a rage about it for All various right, reasons. Yeah. Um, we've got loads, we won't talk too much about fantasy football because uh, there's loads of tennis to talk about. We're going to talk about Jessica Pagula today. Uh, we'll talk about David Haggerty. Uh, we'll talk about Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic, and a whole host of other players as well. Um, and probably quite a good way to start with Jessica Pagula this week. Um, people may or may not, but if you haven't, I recommend you go and read her piece on the Players' Tribune, uh, which was entitled, I Want to Talk About My Mum. I Want to Talk to You About My Mum, I should say. And uh, it's a very moving piece, talking about how her mum suffered a cardiac arrest uh, last summer. Uh, she was given CPR by, by Pagula's sister, who, who saved her life, actually, and she's been on quite a long road to recovery ever since, and, and is still quite ill and, and it's a very moving piece about how she was having to still try and play tennis while also going through all this in the background now Tamani, you am I right in saying you quite recently have interviewed Jessica Pagula yeah I, I spoke to her before the Australian Open mm. and yeah we, we chatted about you know various things including um, Hamlin and you know when we spoke she kind of you know she mentioned that there was she kind of hinted that there was a connection and that she you know when it happened, she thought about things that were happening with her mom, and mm. but she, you know, she can't. She at, at that point, she she and her family obviously weren't ready to actually speak about the exact, you know, why it was so significant. Mm. And so that, you know, re- reading the um the the Players Tribune piece, kind of, you know, the the dots were kind of connected there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very well written piece, and it's you know, it's very well put together, and it's you know, um, it's kind of. It suggests she's someone who is a good thinker, has quite an orderly mind. I mean, just t- t- you obviously got to know her quite well, and um, just tell us a bit about what she was like to to kind of interview and and how you found her as a, a person. Yeah, um, I, I think there there's a, there are a lot of like um, precon you know pe- people have a lot of preconceived notions about her given the the wealth that she comes from and you know the, her family's. A billionaire, so, uh, you know, she comes from you know that that background, but she is quite thoughtful and you know quite. It, 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 I don't know. It feels kind of weird to say it. You know, it, it, I've seen like when people have described her in, in this way, people tend to push back and <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it and and feel like people are um, I don't know. Just just try trying to to support her too much almost, but I. I, I She's quite, you know, she she is pretty down to earth and and thoughtful, and she's well liked. It's interesting to see like her in the United Cup, where um, all of the players seem to, you know, just vibe with her well and and like her. And she was kind of the the leader, um, the highest ranked player in the U.S. team. And just to see, I don't know, her her relationship with Francis Tiafoe, for example, they were like really tight. And it's given how different their backgrounds and stories are, it's a Kind of a funny old, old couple yeah they spend the whole whole of the australian trip like practicing together before matches even you know at the australian open mm. um but yeah she, she's just i think she's um she's again she's thoughtful she's her, her press conferences are actually re- really good and you know she's great at like she's one of the few players who you know you ask her a question about tactics and and she'll give like a long answer like detailed you know insightful and so yeah i think she's she's quite a good egg and i think that in the piece 
she came across well and just just the way she presented herself and and explained you know all that had happened over the past you know year i think she came across well Hmm. um yeah you mentioned her practicing with francis tfo i went and sat in on one of those sessions just because i was kind of curious you know because you don't get men and women hitting together that often, you know. Especially it was reasonably late on in the tournament, or really later on in the tournament. And I went and just kind of, you know, watched watched them hit together. And they are quite different characters. Yeah, as you say, you know, Francis Tfo, son of, a, of of immigrants from Sierra Leone, I think I'm right in saying. Um, you know, and and sleeping in the in the tennis club and stuff, compared to Jessica Pagula, whose family owned the Buffalo Bills. Um, and actually, they're quite different characters on the court as well. Like, Francis Tfo, as everyone knows, is super laid back. He's almost horizontal. And he does, like, piss around in practice, quite frankly, a lot. Whereas Pagula, I think, is much more focused and, like, quite sort of, um, you know, a, a real hard practicer. And she, it was funny, she said, actually, it was good to practice with him because it was one of those days when I needed to chill out a bit. And he needed to focus a bit. And so they sort of brought each other towards the middle a bit more. Um, Georgie, it was you who put this, this Pagula piece at the top of the running order. I mean, it, it's always great when players share something of this. And it's amazing when they can do it and do it, you know, so eruditely. But it obviously jumped out at you as well. Yeah, I think sometimes it's easy when you're watching sports um to kind of lose a lot of that human aspect and just think oh why aren't they playing well today or you know what they you know they're living a great life where they're traveling around following the sun you know and sometimes you can lose sight of the the human beings uh behind the racket to steal a, a phrase from noah rubin um and the, yeah i was just I was quite moved by this, to be fair. I mean, it must have been a really, really challenging, hard thing to go through, you know, regardless of wealth and status in life, you know, personal um, challenges can hit anyone. And, you know, to have kept going on the tour as much as you've done, and not just going, but playing some really good, high-quality tennis, like it, I wouldn't say it's notably affected any of her results, if anything, um, has been, you know, I think... Uh, you know, testament to her as a, as a character and a, a professional. It's hard to put things like that aside when someone so close to you is, you know, being so obviously affected by something out of all your control. So, yeah, I, I, I think that puts the context of what was already a really impressive string of results and a year as a whole into, you know, perspective of, you know, going through a lot of off-court adversity that, and many people probably wouldn't have been that aware of, or at least aware of the extent of it. Um, just to, to kind of bring people up to speed, if they haven't read it, um, she says her mum is working hard in recovery, improving, but where she ends up is still unknown. Um, she says she's having quite a lot of problems, kind of neurological problems, which is what happens when you suffer a cardiac arrest and you're obviously without um, blood pumping around your body for a period of time. Um, but she is improving, but yeah, clearly still still a long road to go. Um, you mentioned, George, you know, there is obviously a personal element to this, but there's also a professional and a tennis element. And it's interesting when someone like a world number four comes out and shares it. But I think maybe what I had forgotten or something that I don't always appreciate is Jessica Pagula is 28. Like, she's not a spring chicken. She's not a kind of, you know, an ordinary breakthrough. But maybe, maybe this is something that we're going to start to see more in the women's game where more people will make the breakthrough at a later age because it feels like in this rotating cast of WTA stars who can't seem to cope with the pressures of being at the top of the game, it's maybe actually the older women who have the kind of, you know, the 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 experience and the ability to cope with that kind of pressure. Yeah, and, you know, maybe... Yeah, I, I don't think anyone would have looked at... Pagula per se as someone you'd think would have been a contender to be a, a top five player like four years ago for example to be honest like she there is something to be said that a kind of later less pressured rise can be you know even though there's always your own internal pressure and kind of pride in wanting to be an athlete you know it, it's tough when you're an 18 year old like Raducanu for example to have a really great breakout and now everything you're doing looks like a failure 
by comparison to be honest and that's how you're treated um you know i, I wouldn't want to wouldn't want to say there's a right or wrong approach to it but it, it is your career is often defined by what you do at a young age and then how you do against that at an older age so for Pagula, it feels like she's had a very steady upward trajectory the last few years and you can put that down to the majority um and hopefully you know not to make it about Raducanu because it's not really but hopefully she can kind of almost shake off that younger stuff and look at players like Pagula and think okay there is a long way to go in my career I'm ahead of schedule in many ways um can I now like find that kind of grounding that maturity and recognize it can take time to really succeed at this high level of sport so yeah hopefully a good message not just for Raducanu but for others to take Coco Goff maybe even you know it doesn't have to happen right now for you to have a really successful career mm. at the top of the game. I mean, Pagula yeah. is fully 10 years older than Goff as well. Um, Timani, where, where do you see Pagula's kind of ceiling? Do you, do you think she's someone who might go and win three or four Grand Slams? Um, I'm not sure about that. I think she's... You know, just going back to you know the earlier topic, I think her career is... is it's certainly like it, it's something that other players can follow in terms of um you know maturing later in their careers and and particularly on, again on the WTA where there's so many players at kind of a similar level and and so you know once you with age and with with time you you know gain experience and i don't know an understanding of your you know how to be a professional and and that can aid you in, in breaking through later in your career but at the same time, her career is quite unique. I think she was ranked between like uh, 200 and 100 and 200 for maybe six, seven seasons, uh, which is quite crazy, really. Mm. And you know, when, when I was speaking to her, she, she she said that she would she would be playing Grand Slam qualifying matches and like crying on the court, and she couldn't deal with the pressure yet. As she's broken through, now she's playing in the second week of, of slams and completely composed and and you know she's playing in, in far bigger matches yet they they seem like so much less of a big deal now um so just interesting to see um how she progressed yeah i think the, the other thing you're kind of touching on there tomani as well is that her background has almost allowed her to have that long period in 100 to 200 yeah. as well you know for a lot of players who are there it, it's make or break yeah. in those years and you know sitting around is tough so yeah it, it's a it's a fortunate set of circumstances that perhaps allowed her that long in the wilderness but you know she's not the only player to come from a, a well-off background either you know tennis tennis is an expensive sport and often those players who do get the more time have had either heavy backing from an association or um you know do come from a a better back, better in terms of wealth, an easier background. Generational. I'm tripping yeah. all over the backgrounds I mean, what, there. What you're trying to say, George, is rich, <laughs> like filthy, stinking rich. Uh, there are plenty of players like that in tennis who rely on. I mean, you know, rightly or wrongly, I suppose wrongly, you would say the ecosystem doesn't really work um, on that kind of wealth to back them up. But you know, she's she's made good on it eventually, and and she is now world number four and someone who plays it. Yeah, and you know, from a purely tennis perspective, wealth doesn't win her the matches. You know, you might say she's had it, coach advantages or whatever over the years potentially, but she's she's still got to go out there and win it. And you know, quite often we hear that players want it more when they realise how much it it means. So it'd be unfair for us to say that she's not motivated and really does mm. want it as well, and has kind of proven yeah. herself. I, I I do actually like how she. Um... She's like very self-aware and she's quite playful with that. Like people on Twitter in particular are always like joking about her, for example, like being a working class queen or, you know, that kind of thing. Like taking the, you know, she, she for example, I think in, in Doha, she arrived in the airport, like pushing her own bags and people were making jokes about that, <laughs> about how, how charitable she is. And then she would, she jumped in, in, you know, in the thread and, you know, was joking with people about it. So I don't know, I like, I like how she kind of, um, takes that in her stride and doesn't get <laughs> isn't uptight when people joke about her world. Yeah. Um, and to go back to your your initial question, um, James, I I st do struggle to see her winning slams just because just because of her game. Really, I, I think she's really really good at being a kind of a, a, a flat track bully. You know, beating players, been 
lower than her. She's been so consistent, you know, incredibly consistent. She made three Sun quarterfinals last year and then, you know, another one at the start of this year. But, you know, against the, the bigger players and the bigger matches, I do, I do think players can quite can kind of expose maybe the fact that she's neither a huge hitter nor um, a great athlete, like an, a really top athlete. You know, she has, like, she's a really nice player where she times the ball really well and takes the ball early and flat. And But, for example, we, we saw that in, in the quarterfinal of the Australian Open against Azarenka. She dominated, you know, her, her first her first four rounds and was playing great. But then under the pressure of a, a slam champion, she couldn't she couldn't really keep up. So, yeah, at, at the moment, I, I, I struggle to see it. But, hey, may, maybe she can take another step forward and go to the next level. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of inclined to agree that like in, in most slams against the biggest players, you know, I, I think we've been talking a bit about kind of Sabalenka and Rebekina. It feels like they're capable of winning big matches against Fiontek. They've got big games. They're capable of taking the racket out of their hands. Pagula's not like that. But what I would say is, you know, the last five years of women's tennis have also shown you that if you can stick in a draw long enough, it can bloody open yeah. up and you can have a chance. So, you know, from that perspective, I, I see a, she'll have chances history is kind of showing us um to get herself in the mix um whether she takes it or not but either way you know she'll she'll be a solid top 10 top 20 player i imagine for the next couple of years and i don't see that that drop happening you know withstanding injury um well just to, to put you on the spot since i did it to manage your only fair do, do you think she will win grand slams and if if so how many i don't think more than one or two if she does win one um and I think, it, yeah, probably one at most would probably, probably be my... I, I, yeah, it, it's kind of similar to... We've spoken a bit about Casper Rude, for example, on the men's side. Like, I feel there will be a chance where someone like Casper Rude can win a, a slam, but I wouldn't be backing him necessarily to win it. Not of his own <laughs> brilliance, but do you yeah. know what I mean? It's more like the external factors that can lead to it rather than me thinking, I think Casper Rude's a definite Grand Slam champion because he can beat everyone in the field. You know, that, that that's kind of where I'm coming from with this. And I think Pagula probably falls into that category for me. Very good. Um, I'd be tempted to agree. I think probably, uh, as you kind of both alluded to, being bloody consistent is, is going to probably win you, I think, probably two Grand Slams in the next three or four years so maybe maybe that'll be that'll be Pagula's arc but um yeah we wait with interest she's in Doha this week as almost everyone is yes, as far as I can tell the the draw in Doha is ridiculous like it's absolutely stacked I think there's only like four top 20 players not playing it it's basically a Masters event um speaking of Masters events that is the kind of period of the uh, season that we're approaching now Indian Wells and Miami the sunshine swing as people insist on calling it which I'm not wild about, but uh, George, you, you kind of um, pointed us in the direction of a, a thread on Twitter from Owen, um, Tennis Nation, people may know him as, um, who actually is a, also a new listener to the pod, as it happens, as I was seeing from a few conversations on Twitter this week. So hi, Owen. Thanks for, for joining Tennis Unfiltered. Um, he, he wrote a thread about how Indian Wells and Miami are, are big tournaments, but quote, the Australian Open cast too long of a shadow. Uh, with the tournament on the same surface, it feels like the Sunshine Double is a consolation prize. You have to wait all the way to the US Open for the next hardcore major. Um, George, you're, you're a scheduling nut, so I assume you have thoughts about when and where Indian Wells and Miami should be happening? Yeah, I mean, I, I've kind of long ad advocated for the slam should be the pinnacle of an end of a part of a season. So Wimbledon makes sense in terms of it ends the grass court season and is you know the the climax if you like um the french open makes almost perfect sense apart from the random sort of gestad nonsense that happens after wimbledon the stab um, swing or umag yeah. the stab. <laughs> um indian wells and miami i i just I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm not from the States. The kind of whole fifth slam thing annoys me a bit. I know Calvin is a, a staunch defender of Indian Wells and Miami, and other people do really enjoy those events. But I, I've just never been particularly like gripped by them and their importance in the season. Like You've got the kind of sunshine double that people talk about 
as a vaguely interesting thing that it's hard to win both of those tournaments. Um, but that aside, it just feels like a random kind of swell in the calendar that doesn't really do it for me. And when I've spoken about reorganizing the calendar from like an environmental or kind of sporting perspective, I often end up with a controversial conclusion that Indian Wells should be dropped full <laughs> stop from the tennis calendar because the climate's so difficult to make round right at the end of the year. Um, but if you take the emotional attachment to Indian Wells out of it and um, what's his name's money that backs it and makes it a very kind of lucrative tournament, um, it, it, it is quite, kind of quite hard to make a compelling case from a sporting um essence if you like and i i think it's not just indian wells and miami i'm having a go out here because the whole kind of indoor swing at the end of the season has a bit of a similar feel to me as well where I, I i don't think it adds much in terms of if you're trying to create a narrative of a season it should finish at like big events like the us open and then potentially the only things that should come after that are like atp finals and davis cup finals for me that's that's kind of how i see it in terms of a sensible sport Whereas tennis kind of feels like you've got these four massive things that everyone knows about and everyone cares about. And then this, what should be an important thing is the kind of overarching season race like you have in F1 with Hamilton and whatever, you know, you feel it at the end of the season. Tennis doesn't, I, I don't know, it struggles to capture that narrative because its biggest events don't coincide with that happening for me. I think also, but, I mean, Owen says yeah. that the Australian Open casts too long a shadow. I almost think it's the opposite. I think the Australian Open just doesn't have like the 16th of January it starts and like I know tennis players basically don't redo Christmas but I mean Timani I don't know how you feel about it but it feels to me that the Australian Open needs to be like two or three weeks later to give it a bit more of a chance to sort of breathe um yeah I mean I, I think it's completely insane and crazy that tennis that such a big tournament is so soon in the season that players just arrive arrive for the first day and suddenly you're you know fighting to the death of the, the Australian Open but I don't think that's ever going to change really I, I think they're really um since the Australian Open coincides with um uh school holidays and mm. things like that they're, they're not they're never they're, they'll fight for that spot in the calendar um so I, I do agree I think it would be better even if it was in in, in February um and and perhaps even if Miami or Indian Wells was before it, but that's I don't think that's going to happen. And so since it isn't going to happen, I'm I'm actually not. I I don't mind where Indian Wells and Miami and, and where they are in the calendar. I, I also like you know the, the the tournaments going on right now. I I think they're not that um, important really, and <laughs> and mm. there, there's the, so it, it, for players who maybe played until December and want to take a breather they can uh, mm. not not many will i'm sure but i do like that that's an option for players who who maybe end, end up the australian open feeling fatigued and just just one more thing on on, on indian wars in miami i i do like the the challenge of of playing both of those tournaments and trying to win them and um i, I like I, actually, I have to disagree with you james i, I like how it's that sunshine double branding has has come about in the the, the last few years just because it, it I don't know it it makes it seem more significant in my opinion anyway um what I don't like about those events is just how bloated and long they seem the the fact that it, they're two week events but they start essentially the top players don't, don't show up until the Friday because the main draw starts on Wednesday and then there's a buy in the first round so that's that's not enjoyable for me the the other uh, one thing in kind of response to that, the the thing that may potentially affect the australian open going forward is of course the temperatures there which are kind of going up and up and that that's potentially the one thing that could force the hand of the calendar in the long run but i agree you know from a kind of school holidays perspective it's kind of optimal time the other thing that might potentially be interesting um and is also incredibly unlikely to happen. But I do sort of wonder whether there's scope for tennis to have a non-calendar year season and actually maybe have like a kind of a November start into 
February and then kind of finish straight at the mm. US Open. Just as a, a fun other idea, it feels like if you if you're stick stuck with that spot and need to change it, then the lead in could come by mixing up the calendar year. But I'm I'm fairly sure that'll be a having having like an indoor more trouble. Than basically, it's worth. You, you you make Paris Masters like you have an indoor swing before Christmas, right? Yeah, as the start yeah. of the season, the build into yeah. Australia, but it's never yeah. gonna happen, is it? Uh, things don't change in tennis quickly. That's that's for sure. Um, should, should we? I mean, George, I don't know how much there is to say about this, but you've included Nicholas Mahu having a fight with um, the ITF and, and really anyone who wants to uh, have a have a, an argument on Twitter and uh, in the in the media. Well, I think there's a few things I wanted to flag from it. Is that first of all, Mahu's absolutely right in the sense that. Everyone said at the time this deal was being struck, it was too good. So to just be true. just just to, this to, to, to kind value. of fill people in on the, the kind of bare bones here, um, Nicholas Mahu, along with lots of other people, thinks the ITF has colossally screwed up the Davis Cup, partly by rejigging the format and also by um, selling it to Cosmos, uh, a deal that's now gone to the wall in a three billion dollar twenty five year contract that that has gone. Um, and George, you think Mahu's got a point? Well, I, th- I think at the time, everyone who, who saw that deal saw Haggerty kind of lining the pockets of his shareholders in the ITF and wasn't really delivering much and kind of making these grand promises. But anyone with any sense who looked at the deal and what was going on said it wasn't going to work and it was unlikely these people were going <laughs> to stick around in the long term. And, you know, Probably people weren't following it that closely because it was fairly niche tennis um, politics as ever. But, you know, for for those of us who were, this was something we warned about a long time ago. So Mahu, you know, has always been a big advocate of the Davis Cup and, uh, you know, was right in his criticism. Um, I, I also just found it mildly amusing that uh, Gudicelli has just kind of come back at him in like the most petty way possible on social media being like you know maybe you can have a career as a pundit because no one cares about a 40 year old french player or something now uh, which is just you know good old tennis spatting which is something i also enjoy as much as tennis politics is the backbiting that we so desperately need it's, it's also good old bernard, bernard gudicelli who is petty petty as his middle name really um, <laughs> I, I should know that, that that's you know he was former fft president and who you know who had some many issues with he had like a defamation case in the past he's the the man who infamously made those misogynistic comments about serena williams's um catsuit at the french open Mm. and yeah having a spat with a player oh he i should know he's also the man who he was obsessed with facebook lives a a few years ago and that was when he announced you know when sharpover was coming back from her suspension and he, he announced that she wouldn't be getting a wild card into French Open <laughs> dramatically <laughs> on his Facebook live. God, yeah, I just, rem- yeah. I so him having a, a Jesus yeah. yeah so him having a petty spat with a player and a French player his you know his former player player in his you know at, at the FFT is is very on brand. <laughs> um, just briefly to Marnie, because you know we we've talked about Davis Cup a lot on the podcast and people know where where George and I stand on it but but do, do you back this this finals format that we've got now, or, or would you rather go back to, to home and away? As, as far as as a, a fan and and a viewer of tennis, I, I definitely much prefer home and away. I've you know obviously we've we've all seen been to you know some some of these finals and um, the the new event, particularly in, in Glasgow. And I mean, I think with with a lot of a lot of the, the venues. Um, some a lot of the time the the matches with home teams have been fine and you know the the ties with with home teams they bring in the crowds and there's a nice atmosphere and whatever but with with, with the other teams and <laughs> a lot of teams in in these group stages yeah. and final that, that these the, the matches are empty and and dry and not you know the atmosphere is not <laughs> it doesn't exist and so yeah I, I totally miss the kind of the the Davis Cup atmosphere of the past, and 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 just the way it, it was presented to the public, and I, you know, I totally understand that for for the the tournament, you know, for the ITF, it, it wasn't very lucrative, and and it was also difficult. It's, it's difficult in general, just not knowing where 
the biggest, you know, the biggest tie, the the final is going to be until late in the season, you know, booking stadiums, things like that is difficult. Um, but yeah, just as, as a fan, I definitely prefer the old format. And uh, I do think that this has been quite a failure, really, given how, how it has predictably ended and how, you know, all, all of those, you know, Gerard Piquet's promises have, have unsurprisingly turned out to be, you know, false and, and failed. Mm. Yeah, and and to be fair, Mahu, I mean, you know, he's he's never he's always one to speak his mind, but um, he he has the backing of a lot of people in tennis. I mean, they are queuing up to take chunks out of the ITF over this because it's universally been seen as an absolute um, cock up from start to finish. Um, when we come back, we'll talk about Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz, and a whole lot more. Welcome back to Tennis Unfiltered with me, James Gray of the iNewspaper newspaper and iNews.co.uk. Uh, I've got George Belshaw, our tennis writer, uh, alongside me as always. Thank you very much for the Guardian's Tamani Cariol for joining us for the first half. Uh, an excellent debut, I think everyone will agree. And thanks very much again to Abigail Johnson uh, for joining us last week. Had lots of people getting in touch to say how much they enjoyed having Abigail on the podcast. And um, please do get her on more. We will do our best. Um, Brian Gatter says Abigail is an amazing listen please have her on more regularly and he was by no means the only one we'll do our best we will, she's a very busy woman but we will try to track her down as and when we uh, we get the chance uh, speaking of very busy people uh, Carlos Alcaraz has got a very busy couple of weeks coming up because he is due to make his comeback uh, after injury that ruled him out of the Australian Open He's going to play in Buenos Aires and then Rio de Janeiro, which is, of course, the tournament where he made his breakthrough on the ATP Tour, beating Albert Ramos-Vignolas in that three-and-a-half-hour match that finished about 2 a.m. in Rio, just before the pandemic, actually. Um, I think in March, literally February 2020, um, which feels like about an eon ago in Carlos Alcaraz's career. George, I mean, this is... I was a bit surprised to see him bothering going to play the clay, but obviously he will be getting whacking uh, appearance fees at those tournaments as a Spanish speaker in in Latin America. But um, how important is this next couple of months for for Carlos Alcaraz? Yeah, I think, I mean, there will obviously be some appearance fees at play. There's probably something a bit about wanting to play himself into a bit of form as well and just get a few matches under his belt. Mm. Um, You know, We've said it a few times, you know, it's not really happened for him since since the US Open. Um, obviously, hasn't got going at all this season by virtue of being injured. Um, but yeah, I think this this represents a good opportunity for him to pick up a few wins, test his body out. Hopefully, he's fine now. And I think more importantly, from a, a tennis perspective, um, start to start to remind people there's more than just Novak Djokovic kicking around. You know, we, we spoke about it a little bit last week that the, the thing that feels like it's ready to help the ATP tour properly lift off is some big Djokovic Alcaraz matches in big events. Um, and the best way to kind of get that hype going is really for Alcaraz to come back, be shit hot and uh, then come into the clay where he faces Djokovic who, you know, I think Djokovic's is still saying he's got some outside hope of playing the Sunshine Double, but might not be happening. Um, he's applied uh, for a special exemption, um, which I'm delighted that we're talking about vaccine exemptions again. Um, yeah, we love the, those. The vaccine, the vaccine mandate in America is going to be lifted in May, and um, Djokovic's brother, Jordi, said in, I think, to Serbian TV this week that they had applied for a special exemption to get Novak into the US. I mean, I, I kind of sympathise, you know, these events, that you can't move the event, and if if you could move the event, he would be able to play it at the end of May, but, you know, I can only sympathise to a certain extent, because in the end, just get a fucking vaccine. Yeah, and I, I wonder if we're going down the exemption thing again, because he's going to claim he's had COVID or whatever, or what, what the exact <laughs> grounds are, other than... You know, I, it'll probably be, presumably be on some sort of economical grounds, I imagine. But yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, whether whether the US government decides uh, that's a worthwhile um, can of worms to open again, um, 
well, we shall see. But anyway, you know, regardless, it feels like Alcaraz has got this little swing without Novak sniffing around where he can kind of lay his claim again to be the best on the tour, which nicely sets up the clay and also factoring him, hopefully by then Rafa is back in some sort of good shape after a period of rest. And, you know, that that's really the best we can hope for because if we can get lots of good Djokovic, Alcaraz and Nadal matches, assuming Nadal, and it's not an assumption I'm definitely making with confidence, but, you know, history has shown us he does typically come back and be quite good on the clay. Um, and if his body is not going to completely fail him, then that's a pretty nice position to be in, having the three of them hopefully in form and, uh, and firing. So, yeah mildly optimistic for men's tennis for the next five months but it can often be dashed quickly James well yeah and it's also trying to get them all at the same tournament like you know Djokovic can't play the two US ones Nadal will pick and choose his way around the clay court season Um, you know he does Nadal I mean Nadal does usually play Monte Carlo doesn't he yeah of course but um, yeah just I just I, I starting to get a bit of a feeling a WTA style feeling where it's like, yes, there's some good players, but they keep bloody avoiding each other. Um, and I'm sort of feeling that this this late stage of the Djokovic-Nadal rivalry... Excuse me! Uh, that's, how, that's how I feel about it. Uh, a bit of <laughs> enormous yawn, um, because we're just going to spend our whole time like mapping out draws and, and schedules, hoping that they're going to turn up at the same tournament and play each other, and... This increasingly feels like it's just not going to happen that often. Yeah, I mean the the other interesting guys, I suppose, from a can they get back in the conversation sort of thing is it'll be interesting to see where Zverev can get himself up to by the clay. This again mm. feels like a a good little period for him to get some matches under his belt because he he was really good at Roland Garros last year, and you know if that unfortunate injury didn't happen, I I've said this before. I know Calvin vehemently disagrees but I, I felt he was going to come back and beat Nadal that day I really just had a sense he he was on top and he was going to turn it around um, and the other guy I guess not so much for the clay but for the kind of sunshine double um, be interesting where Medvedev can get himself to as well you know we've spoken a bit about is, is his kind of height at the top of the rankings over those were two tournaments that he was obviously injured for last year and struggling so it's a good chance for him to get some points on the board as someone who's been quite consistent at big hardcore events um but his you know cloak of invincibility on hard courts has been pierced a little bit um even though as i've said i think he's lost to some good players on the hard courts at bad times we playing them um you know he needs to start racking together some wins so yeah there's potential optimism and interest in this little swing in terms of some of the the fallen or absent stars, if you like. And of mm. course, the final hope for Dominic team to get back for the club. I, I I'm really, not holding up on that. I did wonder how long it would be until you said Dominic team. I was like, <laughs> I, we can't talk about clay court contenders much longer without the inevitable Dominic team arriving. Um, I mean, I, I hate to bang on about it because you talk about him so much, but, you know, it, it would add a real element if he were to, because he was like the second best clay court player in the world, I think. For a period of time, yeah. um, it, you could argue the best clay court player in the world, and just just couldn't beat Nadal at Roland Garros, which is a special case. Um, you know, he's beaten Nadal on clay multiple times, I think. Certainly, yeah, yeah. I think only Djokovic has beaten Nadal more times than the, on a yeah. clay court. So that's not a bad company to be in. No, no, indeed. Um, we sort of touched on Novak Djokovic there, and he's he's obviously back at world number one and. He's breaking yet more records. Two weeks away from going past Steffi Graf's record for the most weeks at number one. George, I mean, they, they do talk about this. We we know that the GOATs, for want of a better phrase, do talk about weeks spent at number one. Uh, Djokovic will presumably talk about it much more because it suits him, you know, in terms of the debate. But where does this stack up in terms of credentials against other, you know, things like Grand Slam titles or titles or whatever? I do think this one's quite important. Um, and I think particularly in the context of the numbers he's on on the slams now, plus the context of um, who he's potentially passing. You know, there's there's been a lot of kind of conversations that, you know, goats is always a, a difficult phrase, but 
you'd say you know the Serena graph even caught for for a time have felt kind of out of reach for um these kind of male guys and suddenly Djokovic feels like he's going to go past all of them in terms of slams mm. and he's going past core uh, graph in terms of weeks number one and that that shows incredible consistency um and brilliance frankly to have been able to do that so it's showing he's turning up at big events where it's you have to be at your best and everyone wants it so much more and he's turning up week in week out and proving he's the best on the tour um and the two don't often go hand in hand and it's hard um so yeah i think i do think pulling those things together his case becomes ever ever stronger and while it's no foregone conclusion he definitely will pass them it feels more and more likely with every passing slam um and this one will yeah really be uh solidifying his claims if you like yeah it's hard to argue against the 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 weeks at number one thing um i mean i i still think the streak you know like long the most i think which is one of the few records that federer still holds is the most consecutive weeks at world number one which was he world number one for like 300 and no i can't remember the exact number it was 230 it was like four years at number one right like it was completely absurd which you know i find the goat conversation a bit difficult at the best of times but the the way the phrase that i always use when i'm talking about the greatest of all time of any athlete and people say oh you can't compare this era to that era is i say well who is the most dominant athlete of all time and I think that world number one thing suggests the dominance that you've got yeah it's interesting isn't it because like that Federer period was like I think 2004 to 2008 which is obviously kind of pre pre Djokovic so Djokovic fans will obviously say well you know it was against a young Nadal and Djokovic um who hadn't quite had lift off um, but you'll you'll always get that kind of nuances at any stage of the debate. So I can't, for me, kind of the total is more important, if you like, particularly considering Federer did have a 237 weekend start on the two of them, and then um, <laughs> it got pretty tricky from them. But um, I mean, the other thing that's you know it's not quite the same as in boxing, but there is something quite nice about a guy who falls off top and then gets himself back there and you know it's not viewed quite the same way as having a heavyweight belt etc but Novak's had a few kind of ups and downs hasn't he in periods where people have written him off and said he's not going to win a, a slam again as he as Federer and Nadal have as well and that, that kind of redemption arc is always nice as a sporting narrative if you like so I'm also yeah a little bit like well he's put together a few pretty meaty streaks as well number one I think he's got two of the top six so that's that's not bad going as well in the men's side yeah yeah he's, he's done all right um right let, let's move on um that we are because we're recording on sunday night which is a little bit unusual for us and because of where the tennis is this week we don't have the final results of all the tournaments that are going on this week in this kind of weird weird swing where we've got we've got the golden what's it what do they call it the golden swing the South American clay in February? No? Golden yes. swing. No, is it not something like that? Uh, maybe that, maybe that's literally just Juan Ignacio on Twitter and he is biased because obviously he's <laughs> South American. Um, I call it the South American swing, I think, is the only thing I've yeah, ever called it. But I mean, um, it's, maybe. It's, I don't know. We, maybe we need a name for it. It, it. You know, we've got the stad swing. Um, so I don't know what this, this would be. But anyway, um, less of that whimsy. Uh, more of actual tennis. Uh, we do have one result. Uh, Yannick Sinner uh, beat Maxime Cressy in Montpellier to claim the seventh title of his career. He's still not 22 and he's won seven titles. He's 7-1 and one in ATP finals. Um, George, you don't, you don't necessarily associate indoor courts with Yannick Sinner's success, but I suppose the conditions probably do suit him reasonably well and good to see him play himself into a bit of form. Yeah, I think He's he's good on a hard court. He's, I I see him as being fairly good on most surfaces, and yeah, you know, even probably the one he he's weakest on has been grass historically. He's still to get semis of Wimbledon last year, of course. I can't remember now, but of course. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, the the players he's beaten this week, Fuxlix, Sonego, Fee, Cressy, you know, they're guys Yannick Sinner should be beating if he, if we think he's as good as he can be. Um, but could should be and actually going out there and doing it aren't often the same things and he's he's done it sorry i mean he had a walk over against fuxovic but you know the other guys he's swatted aside in in straight sets and that's about as good as you can hope for after a slightly disappointing end to the australian open i i did really fancy him to beat sissipas in that match given where sissipas felt like he was at that moment um and he came back from two sets down and and then lost in a fifth and he's had similar results at the US Open against Alcaraz where it felt like that match was on his racket um well I mean it was it, it, literally, it was. I mean, literally was like and you know it, he, he he's still only 21 we've spoken earlier about Pagula maturing a little bit later he's not in a bad position sitting to be sitting around and thinking you know get my consistency up get a lot of tour wins and myself build up that 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 fear factor if you like and then those big results at the slams will will start coming and they're not they're not far away it's just he he feels a bit of a near misser at the moment um and but i i still have more faith than probably calvin does that he'll he'll get over the line at some point he's he's definitely ahead of like the casper rude category of someone i think just needs a good draw to do it i think he's capable of beating top players as well going forward as as hard as it will be with Mr. Alcaraz kicking around. Mm. And he's working with Darren Cahill now, who, you know, is by reputation basically the best coach in the world and one of the few people that I think people think is worth having as a coach. So, um, yeah, he's he's in the right hands and moving in the right direction. Um, I, I also note this week in, in Dallas, John Isner became the first AT player, ATP player to win 500 tiebreakers. Which is so unworthy of celebration, George. We should we should be we should be <laughs> shaming him for that. Um, yeah, it's it's a pretty crazy number to kind of think about. Like when you think about, we quite often like to celebrate five hundred match wins as a whole. Um, yeah, which is you know in itself a very 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 good achievement. We, um, that very good players do, but. 500 tiebreaks is still such a lot of tiebreaks. <laughs> like, that guy just never stops playing then, does he? Um, I mean, look, he isn't has had one of those careers where he's had an unreal serve. Not many unreal other aspects of his game, but that one shot is so, so good that it's kind of dragged him to be a, a top 10 player and, you know, stick himself in little pockets of Teddy's history. Um I quite like the person who's number two on that list, by the way. I think he's like 40 behind or so, but that's Federer as well, which is, you know... So Serve that's, bot that's, Federer. Serve bot Federer. So Isner has clearly proved his GOAT credentials ahead <laughs> of Federer there anyway. Jesus, God help us all. <laughs> um, what else has been going on in tennis this week? I mean, the Alexander Bublik triple racket smash is one of the great moments of understated commentary. Um, he Was he in Montpellier, Bublik? I think I'm right in saying he's in Montpellier. And uh, yeah, he, he smashes one racket. I think he's six love down in the deciding tiebreak. And um, walks over to his bench and he finishes smashing his racket. And then commentator says, it's a good thing he's got a few of them. And he then smashes through two more while sitting on the bench. Um, I mean... He then has the temerity to like question the umpire for giving him a code, which I think is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. He, he um, could have been defaulted by the letter of the law in terms of well, yeah, three quite. code violations. Well, the, the the best bit for me was then he then stood up and I don't know who it was on comms. It was probably someone I really like, and uh, they said, "Oh, I think that gives us a little bit of an insight into his mindset." And I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really does actually. Quite a big insight into his mindset." Um, he basically. Alexander Bublik like probably could be a really good player, or is it just not remotely in his DNA? Uh, I think he, he could be in terms of he's got a lot of skill, mm. um, but as you know, skill only gets you so far, and he is um, 
he doesn't always have his sandwiches at the picnic basket, shall we say, for a week. Um, mm. And he, there are t- there are a lot of times, you know, he's he's an entertaining watch from the perspective of you don't know what's going to happen. But there are times where he just walk, trots around and just, as Kyrgios used to do a lot younger in his career and has fortunately seems to have stamped out of his game, I would say the last couple of years. Um, a lot of that kind of just tanking, walking around, doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it, it, it's never a boring day watching him one way or another. And you know, the scoreline itself in that match was pretty... <laughs> Pretty ridiculous. It was a set down 6-4, won the second one 14-12 in a second set tiebreak and eventually beaten in a final set tiebreak 7-3. So, um, yeah, another quiet day at the office for public. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't really know what his, like, what his end game, I mean, maybe he's just a total lunatic and, like, you just have to <laughs> not try and, like, rationalise it because if you try and understand it'll make your head explode. Um, have you ever seen a worse call on amateur courts, George? Have you ever been the victim of what I believe is called a hook? Uh, Charles Courtreau of Radford uh, calling a return of serve that lands just short of the service line um, long and celebrating having won the point in a in a college fixture where there was no chair umpire. Um, you know, never mind line umpires. And so he was able to get away with it. I mean, is that, is that have you ever seen anything like that or played against someone doing that? So I, I, I've never seen one that bad that was like against me. But I've got quite a funny story of like the other way around. I was playing in like a um, as a, as a, a kind of junior in playing some kind of local club championships sort of thing. Um, a kid had come over from another club to to play our club, and I, I was hammering him i think it was like six love and i was two love up in the second set and i was i was hit i hit 20 aces in this match james um which i've never hit as many and i'll tell you why i hit 20 aces he stopped bothering calling the ball out i hit so (laughs) many aces that were like clearly like on the outside of the tram line sort of thing and he was just like i want to go home good serve (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I, i've had it that way around i mean i've, I've had bad calls but I've, i can't think of one that has sat on the surface line in the middle of a point that someone's had the balls to try and call out um because uh, I remember, it, it is a balls thing like people will call you out on it when it's close and it, it you know it gets pretty contentious and sometimes you're you're not quite sure because you know you're you're thinking about hitting the bloody thing rather than did that mm. go in and it is difficult to call yeah, yeah um but like to do something like that is is pretty ballsy to not then expect the racket to be lobbed at you or something from the other side I, i'm reliably informed well, i say reliably someone in the comments is suggesting that it was a retaliatory hook and that there had been two previous incidents in the other direction that had been similarly heinous and he was almost just... like yeah, I've I've seen that happen before. Not not me per se, but I've seen some very petty calling in kind of uh, club doubles matches where someone feels they've been wronged and then definitely have picked up a couple of free points when it was dropped on the baseline rather than uh, beyond it. So mm. yeah, that that is that is a uh, not a uh, not an uncommon thing, shall we say? Right, we've just got time for one question for you, George, because I'm going to have to splice some Calvin in later, so we are on a, mm. a tight uh, time schedule. Uh, Ian Warren, Wazza, uh, says, in last week's show you referenced US TV figures being down for the AO. In order for tennis to attract a new generation of fans, uh, it will require far more than Breakpoint on Netflix. My question is, is it time to trial best of three sets for the men in Grand Slams? Uh... Not, not for me. I, I still think that tennis's best matches are are best of five sets. The most memorable are the ones that cut cut through the most. If you like, aside from the ones where you get some ridiculous drama happening, like Djokovic whacking a ball at someone and mm. almost knocking out a line judge. You know, the, the things that develop the over the years, like the best matches, are broadly speaking um, best of five sets. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I could drone on all day about various problems, kind of plugging and advertising tennis. I, I 
do think this kind of ties into the season as a whole as well. I, I think tennis doesn't do a great job of selling its narrative compared to other sports. Um, and I don't think, you know, the, the fact that so many times people would ask me when I was um, kind of Metro tennis correspondent what I did outside of Wimbledon because they kind of just thought tennis mm. happened at Wimbledon. And, you know, that's a, that's a specific British issue, but it is something that kind of people who aren't interested in the sport whereas you know people know football's on all the time and they assume rugby's on all the time because you get that kind of um exposure so i think there's kind of bigger um issues about how tennis is like but it is also having said that quite challenging when you're a global sport and you're trotting around different time zones all the time to to mm. hit people in specific locations and you know stuff like breakpoint um i don't know if it was perfectly done i don't i've not heard anyone outside of tennis say to me oh i watched this the other week it was really good um and tennis players were more interesting than i thought they were and now i'm going to yes. start watching it i've not heard anything anecdotally of that which is probably a sign it wasn't done that well but stuff like that is good and like you know the andy murray documentary people did say they'd watched that and they'd enjoyed that and they thought it was a good film and um yeah i i realize i'm using very anecdotal things but i do often do often quite take a measure of because no one ever talks to me about tennis apart no. from a very select group of people that when people do start talking to me about it you know it's kind of cut through um so yeah I, I, there's huge challenges but stuff like breakpoint maybe was a right idea of just not as well executed as, as it could have been but mm. who knows there's there's still five or six episodes to come with that aren't there so yeah yes you never know in those there might be something so outlandish and outrageous that suddenly captures the imagination of every young kid who storms out to get a racket um <laughs> and the next federer is born or whatever but we'll see uh, and on that optimistic note uh, we might leave it there we'll we'll come back with calvin live and exclusive from dallas now, as many of you will know, Calvin is currently out in the States with Henry Patton, who he coaches. Uh, he's playing doubles with Julian Cash, who won so many Challenger titles last year. They're playing a couple of 250s. Uh, they were this week in Dallas and now have moved to Delray in Florida, which is a real hotbed of tennis talent at the best of times. Now, Calvin, unfortunately, couldn't join us for the main podcast because of practice schedules and time zones making it tricky to arrange. But I did have a couple of listener questions for him that I thought I would put to him. And he was kind enough to send back a couple of voice notes. And I started with one from Tennis Ranter on Twitter, who said, I saw that Oliver Bonding won a J300 title in Colombia this week. It's a junior title. Could Calvin explain the different tiers of junior tennis to gauge how big a win a J300 title really is? Well, I put that to him, and here's what Calvin had to say. Okay, yeah, so um, junior tennis um, tiers. Right, so you've got uh, the Tennis Europe events, which are sometimes known as ETAs. Um, I don't know why, but that's what they're sometimes called. Uh, They are... Uh, oh, well, I guess it's European Tennis Association. That's why they call that. Uh, they tend to be, they're the under-14s. So they do do a couple of under-16s, but nobody really plays those. So Tennis Europe is the under-14s, and they have uh, three grades of those, grade one, grade two, and grade three, grade one being the best one. Uh, so the best under-14s players in the, you say in Europe, but generally in the world, tend to play Tennis Europe events. Um, the biggest one being the one at Tabs, which has just happened, that's, kind of seen as the under-14s World Championships, kind of along with the Orange Bowl um, in America at the end of December, but mainly the Tabs one. So then what happens then is there is no under-16s international level tournaments, really. So you go to the ITF events, which are the under-18s events. Now, the ITF events have, uh, they have six grades officially. They have grade A and then grade one, two, three, four, and five, or as they've now started calling them, 5,000, you know, that kind of thing, or 300s or whatever they call them. But they're, they're grade A. The grade A's are the Grand Slams, and I think there's one world championship. Uh, and then everything else, the grade ones are the the biggest, the other biggest tournaments, grade two, grade three, grade four and grade fives. Now, because there is no under 16s world championships, what tends to happen is the grade fours and the grade fives and the grade fours 
tend to be for players who unofficially tend to be for players who've just come out of under 14s tennis so they've just that they're in their first year out of that and they tend to play they tend to be the kind of local players who are over that age so you might get some local like 17 and 18 year olds and they're playing against the the, the good under four, the good 14 15 16 year old players in the world then uh, the grade ones and twos tend to be the best um the best players in Europe for under 18s, but uh, sort of 17 year olds, that kind of thing. Um, and then the grade threes tend to be a kind of bridging between those. Uh, so the guys who are too good for the that they've come out of the um, they've come out of the grade fours and fives, and they've got they're, but they're not quite making the list for the grade twos and ones yet. So that's basically what Oliver Bondage just won. He's won a grade three. Um, so yeah um and basically what it is is that and this is not to be dismissive of anything that anyone's won um because you've got to win them and they're, they're, they're none of them are easy to win but you in junior terms i would only really pay attention to i guess the top maybe even the top 50 but the top 100 of junior itfs because anything outside of that is basically the players who can afford to play the most events and it's it's not cheap playing ITF junior events because there's a lot of travelling worldwide. So a lot of juniors will tend to do what like the Brit a lot of the British juniors who don't have that kind of money will play the junior ITFs that are in the UK and then maybe three or four more throughout the year in Europe and then they'll play like British Tour, which are in theory adult events and that kind of thing. Our next question comes from Owen tennis nation on twitter he says is there a tactics problem in pro tennis it sometimes feels like players don't really bother with structured game plans or trying to make the opponent beat them with their worst shot uh, feels a little bit harsh to me but let's see what calvin had to say um i don't think there's in the men's game i don't think there's um a tactics problem i think um no more than more or less than there has been ever before you get some players who are smarter uh, some players who tend to rely on their big shots um for example, Murray is a tactical genius, always has been. He likes to problem solve and, and work out ways to beat his opponents and find holes in their game and exploit them. And then you know, you're always going to have guys who do that uh, right through and you still get them now with players like Jensen Brooksby and guys like that, not to the same level, but similarly. And then you're always going to get guys, you know, like Nadal has always been tactically very astute. He problem solves in the game. Djokovic does as well. Fed, you know, Federer's absolutely. But then you're always going to get guys like Federer, Del Potro, who just, you know, just back themselves if they play their best game. Um, they're going to they're gonna win. Um, I don't think there's as much of a problem as that, as there is, a, I guess, a technical and a skills problem, because I don't think there's many men who can volley that well at the minute so that kind of limits what you can do tactically um there's a lot of poor backhands around i think even in the top 20 there's a lot of players who don't have very good backhands uh just big serves and big forehands so maybe that will lead to a, a tactics problem but i don't think it's there at the minute i think if if some of the male players had um had a bit more variety in terms of volleys and backhands they could maybe op open up some more options for them tactically but i think that comes first uh in the women's game Again, you know, there hasn't been much tactics in the women's game for for 15 years, I'd say now. It, it's been a thing that the, the women will basically hit the ball as hard as they can and, and whoever hits, hits it better on the day will end up winning. And uh, that's not to be dismissive of the female players, but if you watch the majority of matches... You know, we just watched the Australian Open final and that was the case. Whoever hits the ball cleaner, whoever plays better on the day will win. But I don't think that's much of a change with how it's been over the last five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Um, that's just the way that the women's game has developed, I think. And finally, of course, we had to ask Calvin about that line call which went viral on Twitter this week. Is it the worst one he's ever seen? It's just ridiculous, but... I've no doubt that something has happened before that. The player who's made it, I assume, thinks or knows that he's been cheated by the player at the other end and he's just taking one back. Um, what happens in tennis now, though, in college tennis now, though, is you get code violations for them, uh, for bad calls. And it's the same as in any normal code violations, a point deduction, game, and then match. Um, so it doesn't happen a great, great deal, although it does happen in college tennis, but... I found the weirdest thing about that was I found if if that was me and I, I'd been cheated in a match and I was going to hook them back in that regard, I'd have waited till there was one closer because I think that would piss them off more. 
who piss the opponent off more. There, they just know that you're you're doing it out of spite, and they're not really going to lose their head about it. Whereas if you if you call one out that's maybe like six inches in, that would infuriate me more if I was facing against it. But yeah, I mean, I find, I've got to be honest, that kind of thing, and I'm starting to find college tennis a bit pathetic with all that, the noise that they make, they're overly getting pumped up in matches all the time, which anybody who watches any college tennis will see. It's just every single point they're getting overly pumped up, like they've just won the fourth set at Wimbledon to take it into a fifth, when it's really they've just made the score 15-all, 2-all in the first set. Um, the coaches getting overly involved um overly excited i find that a bit silly I, I do worry a little bit about college tennis to be honest i think it's getting a little bit silly in that regard with that kind of thing and there are some some bad line calls apparently going on but yeah uh, i wouldn't say it's the worst line call i've ever seen just because it's too obvious uh, i think the worst line calls are the ones that are closer than that but are 100 percent terrible line calls that's all we've got time for this week i hope you've enjoyed the various different perspectives and voices we've had on the podcast next week. Do leave us a review uh, wherever you get your podcast. They're really helpful and get more people to listen. Tell your friends as well. Tell your tennis partner. Tell your mum. Tell whoever you want uh, that Tennis Unfiltered is the place to be at the moment. But most importantly, bring yourself back here next week and listen again. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. Sports Social Podcast Network.